Now, last week, we did kick off this mini-series in our Relationship Goals series called, or on the subject of sex from a biblical perspective. And you'll remember, if you were here last week, that we kind of, I don't know, I did the obvious thing last week as a pastor. I shared with you all the don'ts. All the stuff the Bible says you're not supposed to do when it comes to sex. And so I said things that you probably expected me to say, like sex outside of marriage, it really does damage your ability to experience true intimacy later inside of a marriage. So you might want to be careful about that. We talked about the fact that pornography is destructive and sinful. So like stop pulling up private browser tabs. It's not helping you grow closer to your spouse. And then I told you no matter how many times dude asks, do not send him nudes. Last week, we covered the obvious, do nots, thou shalt nots. Today, what I want to do is I want to transition from 1 Corinthians 6, where our conversation began last week, and move into 1 Corinthians 7. And the reason that we're going to do that is because 1 Corinthians 6 really does highlight kind of the boundaries that God has set up for sex and and, uh, his plan and desire for sex. But then once we get into 1 Corinthians 7, God transitions from the thou shalt nots to the thou shalts, if you're with me, all right? God starts to articulate and outline all the things that should be true, sexually speaking, inside of a Christian marriage. And if you thought last week was interesting or spicy, just wait until you hear today, all right? Because this gets even better. Now, look, again, I'm I'm not going to apologize for this. We are always going to be the kind of church that deals with this sort of stuff. We're not going to hide from it. We're not going to pretend that it doesn't exist. We're not going to curtail or kind of shift or shade the truth. We're just going to address the things the Bible addresses. And guess what? The Bible addresses every aspect of life, including our sex lives. So I'm going to tell you guys right now that the things we're going to read today are really open and direct kind of blunt, but in the best possible way. You're going to discover this morning that the Bible's teaching on the subject of sex inside of a marriage is so direct and it's so free that it'll make grandmamas blush and teenage boys stay awake during the sermon. Are you with me? All right. I'm just, I'm trying to set some levels for this morning before we start reading. Why don't we go ahead and do that? Before I put 1 Corinthians 7, 3 through 5 on the screen, let me give you our outline or our roadmap for this morning. We can actually just go ahead and toss this on the screen so you can kind of get this in your mind as we get started. God wants your sex life, married couples, to be fulfilling, frequent, fun, and faithful. All right, that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Let me show you why I say that. First Corinthians chapter number seven, verses three through five, the scripture says this, a husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. And all the ladies said, amen. And a wife should fulfill her husband's needs. So all the fellas said, whoa. Do you see a disparity there? (laughs) We might need to discuss that a little bit. Scripture goes on to say, the wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a, limited a to- for a limited time so that you can give yourselves, for example, more completely to prayer. And then afterwards, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you 
because of your lack of self-control. Some of y'all just found a new life Bible verse right there. You know, when people are like, what's your life verse? And they quote like John 3, 16 or something. You're like, no, I really like 1 Corinthians 7, 3, which says a husband shall fulfill his... Anyway, all right. There is a lot of interesting stuff, and we're going to spend our entire message this morning just unpacking these few sentences. And I want you to notice that we've highlighted here in the first sentence, the first verse of this passage, the word fulfill. God wants your sex life to be fulfilling. He does. That is his plan. That is his design. You should be fulfilled in your sex life with your spouse. But it's not just that God wants your sex life to be fulfilling. Hello, God wants your sex life to be mutually fulfilling. Mutually fulfilling. Let's go ahead and put it on the screen here for him. Did you notice that the Apostle Paul, he's the one who wrote this scripture, okay? Did you notice that he starts by saying it is the husband's job to fulfill his wife's sexual needs? Why is that significant? Well, Paul, if you'll remember what we discussed last week, was writing to a culture in which wives were kind of an afterthought. Women, they didn't have the status that men did in their society. Nobody was worried about a wife's sexual needs, all right? The wife existed to produce heirs for the husband and to meet his sexual needs. That was it. I told you last week, there were laws on the books in both the Roman Empire and in Hebrew society that allowed a man to divorce his wife simply because she didn't perform in the bedroom the way that he wanted her to, or because she was unable to produce any male children for him, all right? So in their world, nobody was thinking about women. Nobody was concerned about whether they enjoyed sex or not because that wasn't the purpose of sex for ladies. Well, Paul comes along and he says, wait, 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 wait. That's not how God wants you to look at things. If you pay close attention to Paul's writings in the Bible, he continually elevates women He elevates them from property to partners. He elevates them from property to partners. See, there's this idea that the world, uh, that the scripture, there's this idea in the world that the scripture is somehow backwards. It's regressive. It's harmful to women. It's sexist and misogynistic. Only people who've never read the Bible or understood and studied the context in which it was written would actually say that. Because the Bible is this insanely progressive text, particularly for its time. When nobody was concerned about women and what they wanted in the bedroom, Paul's like, fellas, your wife has sexual needs just like you do. And it is God's design for you to meet her needs, not merely to demand that she meets your needs. That was huge. First century dudes would have been like, what? For real? Yes, absolutely. So the Bible was very progressive for its time. Can I tell you, though, the Bible is also a necessary and needed corrective in our world today. We need what the scriptures say on this subject. Why? Well, because there are still pockets of our society that do not value women the way that God does. Still exists. Sexism, misogyny, it's still here. So that's one reason. Second reason is, Our society has, the majority of society, has swung so far in the other direction that now we're like, okay, men are the problem, okay? Women are the solution. And we've kind of gotten to this point now where we're like, you know, if if women were just in charge, there would be no war, there would be no greed, there would be no violence. We would basically have a utopia if you men would just step out of the way and let the ladies take over for once, all right? Can I tell you, that's not true, Okay, 
It's not true. We live in a world that swings between these two extremes in which we say women don't matter or women are the answer. But when you study kind of gender roles and the biblical perspective on manhood and womanhood, we see that God designed it so that both sexes are necessary. Both sexes need to have their place. It is a place of equal value and dignity. That's why Paul is constantly drawing our attention back to Genesis chapter number two, where God says he created men and women in his image. Paul says that men and women are co-heirs with Christ, that there is no Jew, no Gentile, no slave, no free. There's not even male or female in Christ that God has designed us so that both sexes are needed to adequately image him and to rule the world the way that God intended, all right? So this was a wild thing for the first century people to read. But, you know, enough about gender studies. You didn't come here for a, a history on gender studies in the Roman Empire. Let's get back here to the subject at hand. What would it look like to have mutually fulfilling, God-pleasing sex in your marriage. Paul gives us some clues, actually, in this passage with the way he constructs it. First, I think we see that there should be a focus on meeting the other person's needs instead of demanding that they meet our needs. Okay? Are you with me? In, in, a, in a Christian marriage, in a healthy biblical bedroom, okay, there is this other-oriented posture in which I'm more concerned with meeting your needs than worrying about whether you are meeting my needs. In a Christian marriage, there should be generous lovers, not selfish lovers. That's what he says here. A husband should work at meeting his wife's needs, and a wife should fulfill her husband's needs. See, if in a marriage or in a sexual relationship, both people are just concerned with getting theirs in the bedroom, all right? I'm just, I'm worried about getting mine. If both of you are that way, you're going to end up with two people who are unfulfilled because both of you are going to be fighting to get your way. Neither one is giving and sex is ultimately an act of giving. So if you got two people that are just focused on themselves and being selfish, you're going to have two disappointed people. Now, if you have one person who is willing to be selfless, but one person who decides to be selfish, then you're going to have one person that's fulfilled and one person that is frustrated. On the other hand, if you have two people who are committed to meeting one another's needs, committed to it, trusting, open to it, then you're going to have two people that genuinely enjoy sex with one another. So I think the first thing we see here is this focus on meeting the other person's needs rather than having our needs uh, be the primary concern. Now, in order to meet your partner's needs, you're going to have to get to know your partner. You're going to have to get to know them. You're going to have to recognize that men and women often approach sex very differently from one another. And so you have to be aware of that and you have to approach it from the perspective of your partner rather than just what comes obvious and natural to you. You're going to have to be able to communicate about what you like and what you don't like, what your turn-ons are, what your turn-offs are, are, right? You're going to have to communicate. And, and listen, communication is ultimately vulnerability. Do you realize that's why people are so bad at communication? Because if you communicate honestly, you put yourself in a vulnerable position. If I tell you what my desires are, if I tell my spouse, I'm not gonna tell you guys. If I tell my spouse <laughs> what my desires are, whoo! Um... And she says, what? <laughs> oh, okay. Anytime I'm honest, 
I put myself in a vulnerable position because I don't really know how the other person might respond or react to what I have to say. And so this is why, I mean, just communication in general is so hard for some people because they can't allow themselves to be vulnerable. Nowhere is this more true than in the bedroom. You have weaker communication in the bedroom than you probably do in every other area of your life because this is the most vulnerable, the most exposed, we might say, that you could be to your spouse. So if you want to meet your partner's needs, you've got to get to know them. And then you've got to be willing to be open and communicate about what you're looking for and what's not working, right? One more thing here. (laughs) Don't ignore the fact that this verse, this passage says that spouses meet each other's sexual needs. Needs. (laughs) It doesn't say that spouses should fulfill every one of their partner's desires or fantasies or kinks or fetishes, all right? It doesn't say you have to do that. It says meet their needs. Now listen, there are plenty of non-vanilla things that you and your spouse could get into that would probably be healthy and fun for you, okay? Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But can I be real for a sec? There are a lot of people who have been trained particularly by pornography to only get turned on when things get extreme. So the scripture isn't saying that your partner needs to fulfill all your weird fantasies my beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. No, it says that we have a responsibility to meet one another's sexual needs, right? I think it's a good thing. I actually think it's a good thing for Christian couples to be open in their communication about their desires and even what they fantasize, but whatever, right? And I think you should probably be open to trying new things within the bounds that God has laid out in scripture. I don't think Christians should be scared of sex or fun in sex or exploration in sex. I don't think any of that has to be true. But listen, the scripture tells us there are boundaries and we wanna make sure that we don't cross them. The Bible says here that we should meet one another's needs. So not only should sex be fulfilling, according to 1 Corinthians 7, it is God's will for sex to be frequent in your marriage. Sex should be fulfilling. Sex should be frequent. In verse 5, we read this, don't deprive each other of sexual relations. Paul says that married couples should be intimate regularly and ensure that there are not long seasons of sexlessness because that leads to all sorts of difficulties and potential temptations and things like that. Paul offers this really interesting um, reason or one example of why you might choose to refrain from sex for a limited period of time. He says, um, you, might to, you might choose to stop having sex for a limited period of time in order to focus more completely on prayer, which is kind of an interesting thought, I guess. Apparently, it is possible to fast from sex. Some of y'all been fasting from sex for like 21 years. We do 21 days of prayer and fasting in the fall. It's gonna be easy for you to fast. You're like, I've, been, I've got a lot of practice at fasting, okay? But I think that this is just an example of a few different things, legitimate things, that might cause you to slow down the frequency of lovemaking in your marriage. I think that common sense tells us that if there is sickness or disability, or if a wife has just given birth or something like that, that that might impact and affect the amount or frequency of sex that's happening inside of a marriage. But listen, even in those circumstances, celibacy, total celibacy, should be temporary, 
And we've got to recognize that like sex takes more than one form, okay? And so like there are lots of things that a married couple can participate in and enjoy, ways that they can enjoy one another that work with the season you're in instead of simply saying, well, it's just kind of difficult, so we're not going to do anything, all right? You would be surprised at the commands that God gives around sex, like how how it should happen frequently and regularly in a marriage. Can I give you some bad reasons to abstain from sex in your marriage? Like if these are some decent ones, some legitimate ones, can I give you some bad ones? A bad one might be to consistently abstain from sex in your marriage because I'm tired and stressed. Okay, why? Why do I say that? Because I don't know anybody that is not tired and stressed. So like if the only time that you're willing to be intimate with your spouse is when you're well-rested and de-stressed, how much sex do you think you're going to have? It's not very much, right? So we've got to recognize that like that is that, listen, I'm not telling you that on every day that your partner demands it or, or tries to make his move or, you know, what she shoots her shot or whatever, that you've got to give in. That's not my point here. My point is we don't want to rely on something like this to be the consistent reason that we say no, because eventually it just becomes like a crutch or a barrier or a shield or something like that that we can use. So I don't think that that's a good one. Can I give you another one, another bad way to utilize um, sex or sexlessness to withhold sex? Uh, Don't use sex as a bargaining chip or a punishment in your marriage. Don't use sex as a bargaining chip or a punishment. Why is that so detrimental? Well, because it makes sex transactional. I'll give you what you want, but you got to give me what I want, right? We've talked about meeting one another's needs, not demanding that our needs get met. And so when we use sex as a bargaining chip to get what we want out of our spouse, then it devalues what should be something that promotes true intimacy and love between partners. When we withhold it as a punishment, we are doing far more damage to our marriage than we realize we are. And so it's really important that we don't treat sex in that way. Physical intimacy, at least according to 1 Corinthians 7, but a lot of other passages as well, should be free and frequent in a Christian marriage. Now, let's be honest. The word frequent is a bit of an ambiguous term, isn't it? I mean, what does, what does frequent actually mean? Maybe for you, frequent means every day. And for your partner, frequent means like three times a month. If you do the math on that, there are 30 days in a month and your partner is like, I'm good three times a month. That means one of you wants sex 10 times more than the other one. So frequent can have a range of meanings. And the Bible doesn't actually tell us, when it says it should be frequent, it doesn't tell us how often we should be making love to our spouse. So how do you know if your sexual appetite is healthy? How do you know if the number that you desire is a normal and sustainable number? I don't have all the answers, okay? I'm not a sex therapist. But one of the things that we can do is we can look at the frequency of lovemaking in married couples at certain ages, okay? And this will kind of help to gauge whether or not we're at what might be a normal level when we look at a population at large. So I'm going to put a chart on the screen, but before I do that, uh, or before we talk about it at least, I need to kind of just give a caveat here. This is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Um, I don't want anybody going home and saying, well, Pastor Dan says we need to be doing it three times a week. No, keep my name out your mouth in the bedroom, all right? Uh, This is weird. 
Okay. In general, in general, married couples have sex on average once a week across all ages, across all lengths of being married. Once a week is pretty typical. But as you can imagine, People in their 20s do it a bit more often than people in their 50s and 60s. So what research tells us is that married couples in their 20s, this is not just Christian couples, this is like couples at large, married couples, have sex on average every two to three days in their 20s. So a few times a week. Some of you guys are like, yeah, we do. And some of you are like, how often? (laughs) People in their 30s generally have sex one to two times a week. People in their married people in their 40s generally have sex three times a month, and people in their 50s and on up are usually one to two times per month. Can I tell you an amazing statistic? The age at which you are most likely to report being sexually satisfied is in your 50s and 60s. Hello, empty nesters. You guys got the kids out of the house. You ain't got to lock the door. You can make some noise. You're enjoying it. So how old is your sex life? Does it seem like a reasonable range for somebody at your age? Now, again, this is not pre I'm not telling you this is what your marriage should look like because there are all sorts of issues. And you might be in your 50s, but doing it like you're in your 20s. And there could be legitimate reasons to be in your 20s and doing it like you're in your 40s. I'm not prescribing anything, but I'm just saying like one of the, uh, not one of, the most common complaint in the bedroom between couples is a mismatch in desire over the frequency of lovemaking. And so this can give you at least some context because you probably don't walk around polling your friends. I've never seen somebody put an Instagram poll up in their stories and they're like, how often y'all doing it? And then, you know, like, so this might be information that's helpful to you and you've never bothered to Google. I mean, it's there, but we don't often look it up. Okay, so what do we do when two partners have a different sense of what frequent means? So one wants it a whole lot more than the other. Let me, let me give, I want to speak to both of you together. I want to speak to the one who wants it a lot more and to the one who wants it a lot less, okay? Um, to both of you together, I would say, look, recognize that it is very rare for a couple to have the same libido. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it's not, it's not typical that a couple wants sex at the exact same or, or very close to the same level of frequency. So you're not weird or off. You didn't marry somebody that you're completely sexually incompatible with because they want it every day or every other day, and you're like, once a month is fine with me, okay? Um, you can work through those things. By the way, this isn't even in my notes, and I don't know if I've got time for it, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Every time I go off script, it's either really good or really bad, so we'll see here. <laughs> We have this tendency to talk about being sexually compatible with somebody. We're like, oh, I just wasn't sexually compatible. Oh, yeah, we had to sleep together before we got married because we had to discover if we were sexually compatible or not. Newsflash, you are sexually compatible with about half of the world's population, okay? (laughs) This is not something, like, here's the thing. Um, When you get married, you know what you're going to discover? That you and your spouse have different ideas about how clean a house should be. Very different ideas in some cases. Okay, now I've never heard somebody file for divorce because they're like, we are just not housekeeping compatible. (laughs) You're gonna have different ideas. All right, this is gonna go in the next message too. You're gonna have different ideas in second service. Um, 
you're gonna have different ideas about how to raise kids, right? And although, I mean, like sometimes this becomes an issue, but more often than not, just because you have a different idea of, you know, how like strict you should be with your children, you're not like, we're just parenting incompatible. We're never gonna be able to work this out. No, you put in the work, you compromise, you go get counseling, you read some books and you come together. Same thing is true sexually. Yeah, I get it. Like, there are some people that are weird, and they have stuff that they need to deal with. And if you're in one of those relationships, okay, fine, okay? But listen, for the vast majority of couples, sexually incompatible is normal. And if you want to get on the same page, you got to work on getting on the same page. Okay, so together, I would say to both of you, listen, there are different levels of desire and that's completely normal. To the person that is like, man, I just like, I really want sex a lot more frequently than my spouse seems to want it. What do I do? There are a lot of things I could say. However, one of the most important is to remember that we've got to pursue our spouse all day long like throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month. So not just like when it's getting close to bedtime and you're like, yeah, sexy time. And so you're like being real romantic, like be romantic all day long. And then don't just be romantic on the day that you're hoping is gonna end in sexy time. Be romantic all the time and you'll find that your partner might be a little more receptive. Now, to the person that is like, hey, look, um, my partner is, they're, they're just on, a, on another level when it comes to this thing, and I don't even know how to keep up. Um, I want to say, like, lovingly, okay, that um, sometimes we do the thing that serves our spouse instead of the thing that serves ourselves. That's part of what marriage is. So sometimes you have to say no to you in order to say yes to them. You're like, oh, no, I, I don't think that that's how a marriage should work. Okay, then try it. Come talk to me in 15 years when you're like, this isn't working. One of the reasons it's not working is you're continuing to demand your rights instead of working to meet your spouse's needs. Look, sex is awesome when it's an act of mutual passion, but sex can also be awesome when it is an act of love and sacrifice, even on the part of one partner for another. We cannot forget this. Listen, this thing that I'm about to tell you may be the reason that some of you guys came to church today. This is the thing that you're going to need to hear. I am my spouse's only legitimate source of intimacy. I am my spouse's only source of legitimate intimacy. And so what that means is, if I choose to withhold sex from them, I leave them with only two options in this world. Either they live a life without, that seems terribly unfair, or... I set them up for temptation to go pursue it from an illegitimate source. Now, I'm not saying affairs are your fault. It's not my point. But listen, I am the only legitimate source for romance, intimacy, and sex with Amber. And so if I withhold it or if she withholds it, something has gone very wrong in our relationship. So we've got to to recognize, listen, I have a responsibility to fulfill my partner's needs. Sex in a marriage should be fulfilling and it should be frequent. But marital sex should also be fun. Can I get an amen? All right, thank you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, Paul says, or he warns partners not to deprive their spouse of sex, of the joy of sex. You know, you only get deprived of stuff you really like and want something you really need. If it's like something you don't care about, then it doesn't feel like you're being deprived. 
But if, you, if your sexual needs are not being met, then it seriously feels like you're being deprived. The scripture says in Proverbs chapter number five, verse 18, rejoice with the wife of your youth. Now, can I tell you something? If you go read Proverbs chapter number five, in fact, fellas in particular, you need to make Proverbs five a part of your devotion this week. You need to go read Proverbs five, some of you guys a few times over, because it is specifically speaking to men who are pursuing women and romance and intimacy and sex in illegitimate places, okay? But this, when you read this verse in context, he says, rejoice with the wife of your youth. He's not talking about like having a long romantic walk on the beach at sunset. He's talking about go have sex with your wife. Enjoy it. Have fun. Rejoice. That is what he's talking about here. And if you want to get real crazy, there is an entire book in the Bible that is dedicated to the pleasures of sex with your spouse. It's called the Song of Songs. In fact, it is so spicy that Jewish boys weren't allowed to read it until they were 12 or 13 years old. It was like, no, your little brain can't even handle it. I, whoa, you know, I almost quoted a couple things just now, but I'm not going to. You have no clue how erotic and bold and unbelievable the stuff that's written in there actually is. Also in Proverbs 5, if you go check it out for yourself. Sex in a marriage should be fun. I'm not gonna spend too much time on this point, but you know, sex was a gift that was given for more purposes than just procreation. Despite what your priest might've told you growing up, the purpose of sex is yes, children, but it's a whole lot more. How do I know that? Well, if the purpose of sex is only children, then Amber and I have no purpose for sex. So we can't have kids. If the purpose of sex is children, why did God make it so darn fun? Because there is more to it than that. You are supposed to have fun. Enjoy your spouse. Rejoice with the wife of your youth, okay? And if sex in your marriage is not fun, something is wrong. Something is wrong. Now, you may be well aware of what's wrong, or you may need to dig into it a little bit. But if you're like, I have no desire, no joy, no fun whatsoever, it is something that should be addressed. It could be that there is a biological cause. You might have some hormonal issues, or there could be some sort of physical thing that needs to be addressed with a doctor. There could be some past sexual wounds or history that are creeping up into your relationship today, and those need to be dealt with. So perhaps you should go see a counselor or make some confessions or something like that. Um, it could be any one of those things. And also, can I just say, sometimes the reason one person doesn't want to have sex very much with the other person is that sex with that person is not as much fun as they think it is. You with me? Have you ever noticed, like, seriously now, people tend to have this attitude or this kind of assumption that they're good at sex. Like, just let's be real for a minute. Everybody is like, yeah, I bet I'm pretty good at it. Like, even if I don't have a lot of experience or any experience, I bet I've got some natural skills in this department. But listen... The numbers just tell us that we're all average at sex, or at least the majority of us are. Sex is a skill, and sex with your partner is a unique skill. So listen, just because you are good with your past girlfriend doesn't mean that you're going to be good with your wife. And don't assume that movies and TV and music have taught us what the other person really wants. Each person is a snowflake, and we've got to get to know. We've got to get to know our partner, and meet their needs. Not that girl down the road's needs, but our partner's needs. Okay, marriage, 
sex, sex in a marriage, should be fulfilling, amen. Should be frequent, yes, Lord. Should be fun, come on now. And lastly, it should be faithful. Should be faithful. Now listen, what I'm about to say, some of it, you're gonna be like, yeah, obviously, I get it. But what I'm about to say in just a moment may be very surprising to you. When, when the scripture calls us to faithful sex, yes, it means don't include sex with anybody else. Don't include anybody else in your sexual life. Don't drag a third person into the bedroom physically or digitally. Don't give to other people what you should be giving to your wife um, or your, your husband. Again, to, to go back to Proverbs 5, Proverbs 5 says, why would you go spill your fountain in the streets? You just think about that for a moment. It's what Proverbs 5 says. It's what it says. So like, listen, there are boundaries that sex should exist within. And when it does, it is good and right and beautiful and hello, it is blessed by God. But when we talk about sex being faithful, there's another way to understand this. Some, they're looking up Proverbs 5 over here. I can already tell. I got them with that one. I got them with that one. There's another way of understanding faithful. It doesn't just mean faithful to your spouse, but it means full of faith with your spouse. A marriage should be full of faith. Faith in God's mercy, faith in God's goodness, faith in God's presence and his plans. When we talk about this kind of sex life, when we talk about these kind of relationships, we're talking about marriages in which husbands and wives are on the same page when it comes to their faith, in which they pray together, they discuss the Bible together. They're open about what God is doing in their lives. This is a marriage in which couples are united against the enemy's attacks on their intimacy and their children's futures. This is the kind of marriage that would slap a man for, you know, denigrating his wife on stage. Are you with me? Protecting. I'm not defending Will. I'm just saying the Bible says there is a time for everything, a season for everything. There is a time to make peace and there is a time to catch these hands. All right. There is. Listen, the Bible wants a marriage that believes all things and hopes for all things and is willing to protect at all costs. This is the kind of marriage that turns the other cheek and goes the second mile for the partner. A marriage that doesn't pattern itself after ungodly agendas or peer pressure, but patterns itself after the love that Christ has for his church. We need families, we need marriages, we even need bedrooms that are full of faith. Sex in your marriage should be faithful, full of faith because faith is the foundational thing that'll give you intimacy. Faith is the thing that will keep you united when every other part of life seems to be falling apart. God wants your sex life to be fulfilling, frequent, fun, and faithful. Yes and amen. Amen.